This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to another episode of Jamming with Jason. Hey, today I have a friend from way down under. So if you if you know that Minute Work song, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But we're going to be talking to my friend Israel Smith, uh, who's from Australia. So we're bringing in somebody from the other side of the world. Uh, and you're going to want to stick around because Israel has an amazing story. And as you listen to this, you're going to actually see yourself in his story and exactly what you need to hear today is what you're going to hear when you listen this to this. It'll help make your life better and, uh, you know, maybe give you some of those things you've been waiting for, wishing for, hoping for, praying for, but didn't know how to change. You're going to get some of those answers today as you listen to this episode. So let's roll that episode with Israel. You are jamming with Jason Mefford, where you hear inspiring interviews with some amazing people. Some are famous, some may seem ordinary, and they are all doing extraordinary things to positively change the world. Sometimes it's just you and me having an intimate and authentic conversation about how you can change the world around you and rewrite the story of your life by being more authentic, accepting and loving yourself more and spreading love to others since really all you need is love and what the world needs now is love sweet love we discuss all aspects of self-improvement growth and so much more great content insightful advice that's practical and helpful to anyone that listens you're always eager to come back for more and share with your friends and family since you learn something in every episode. So sit back and enjoy the easy listening while you feel seen and heard in this informative, authentic, and entertaining podcast. Now, let's roll that beautiful podcast footage. Well, hello, my friend. I'm excited to see you. It's it's amazing that we can use technology and we're like, I don't know, 15,000 miles apart or how far it is, but yet we're together. This is absolutely. Amazing. Yeah, no, I love it. Thank you so much for having me, Jason. And I agree. Like, I think the one of the beautiful things about this is this opportunity to connect from vast distances. Mm-hmm. Well, cause literally we can, I mean, I started my day talking to somebody in, in Europe, you know, I've talked to several different people here in the US and now I'm ending my day talking to somebody in Australia. It's fabulous. It's wonderful. Got all so, the time zones covered. I know. I know. I know. Yeah, I didn't talk to anybody from India today, so I was going to say uh, I might not my uh, the, the whole the whole world going on. But anyway, enough. That's that, next. Right? So it is it is nice to be with you today and um just wanted to kind of start off because I know, you know, you're doing some interesting work and so maybe maybe just kind of explain a little bit about you know what you're doing and how you're helping people now and then we can get into the story behind that and why why you're actually doing that as well yeah 100 percent. so i work to help men lead better lives is the short version but specifically the kind of men i find i that are drawn to working with me and that i love supporting are the men who are really doing well on paper. They've got a really successful career. They've made plenty of money. They have, you know, the house and the car and the partner and the family and that sort of stuff. And yet there's that feeling of stress or overwhelm or everything's out of balance where they might be working way too much and spending nowhere near enough time with their wife and kids, you know, feeling like they're failing as a husband or a partner, feeling like they're failing as a dad feeling like there's an endless pressure of needing to achieve, needing to perform and just not being able to make peace with any of that, that sort of sense of like 
complete chaos that's and i think even more so too the men i work with contend with all of that and they're trying to do their way through they're trying to sort of force and push and you know bury the difficulty and just try to to do more work and push a little harder to kind of make it through and to try and find the solution and i can talk about that really because that was me you know <laughs> i've been there done that bought the shirt but but the stuff i <laughs> me the stuff too I do, yeah. okay right. a lot of us you know and this yeah. is the thing so so i feel really driven and really called to work with men in that position and to say you know it doesn't need to look like this when we really boil down what life is for to me i believe that we get into relationships because we love being with the other person. We love being in the relationship. We start a family because we really want to participate in raising children and, and bringing those experiences into our life of the firsts, like the first steps and the first baseball game and the first kiss and the first car and all of those sorts of things. Like those things that we experienced ourselves, we want to give the gift of that to our children and to be present with them through that. And yet the men I work with and, and in my history, not present, not in the game at all, completely lost in our head, uh, completely feeling like we just have to work our butts off to make all of the money and, and losing sight of the fact that what really matters at the end of the day are the people that we love and the impact we have with them and with the broader community, not how much money we die with. You know, the, the stories that we can tell at the end of our lives are not going to be, oh, I did this amazing deal and I made 65 million bucks. The stories are going to be, I went on this holiday with my family and we met these people and it just changed us forever. And I watched my kids go through their life and, and start families of their own and be present for them while they went through all of the challenges and struggles of being family people themselves. And that was enriching to me or... I learned to paint or I learned to speak a new language. Like these experiences of life that are filled with joy and filled with love and filled with just really truly being in the moment. That's what life is about. Not the work, not the career, not the drive and the money and the chasing. Yeah. Well, I totally agree with you. And that's why I'm excited to, to talk to you today, because again, I, I went through a lot of the same stuff. Um, you know, but I want to do a little disclaimer here because, you know, I'm sure people are, some women might be listening to this. So, so let me, let me just kind of preface this, right. Is okay. Today we're going to be talking from the guy's perspective because Israel and I are both guys. Okay. But, you know, if you're a woman listening and you'd like to understand maybe what's going on in that man's head, maybe that you're in a relationship with, you're going to learn a lot of stuff about probably what's going on in their mind. And maybe one of the reasons why they're not as open with you about some stuff as you might want them to be as well, because we might, we might end up going there as well, but also this is not something that just affects men. Some women find themselves in that same position where they're not really in the game. They're not really present. They're working too much, all of that kind of stuff as well. So like I said, even though we're going to be talking kind of from the men's point of view, this really applies to everybody. So, so Israel, take take us back, help us, because like I said, I, I'm always interested at what people do for a living, how they serve humanity. And it's usually because of some experience or group of experiences that you had that kind of led you to this point of wanting to help other people. So let's, let's just kind of go in and, and jump in and talk about your story a little bit of how you got to that point and why this is such a passion for you now. Absolutely. So I'm 44 and I'm currently on my fourth career. So I graduated from university, you know, was one of the really annoying people who kind of got straight A's all the time without really studying much. So school was a pretty easy cruise. I got a scholarship degree to college and graduated from that earning six figures at the age of about 23. So I kind of had a pretty charmed youth, but very quickly realized that the computer and IT industry was not where I needed to be. I was a very, very, very small cog in a very, very, very big machine. And I reached a realization one, one day when I was 
sitting in this little computer room with about 30 servers buzzing at me with no natural light, no one to talk to, going slowly heat, out of my skull. The heat right. for those things too, right? Horrible. It was yeah. horrible. So I was sitting in that room and I thought, my life is worth more than this. I'm I'm here for something more than this, right? So that was the first little moment. I changed careers to becoming a professional photographer because at the time, as, a, as an escape from my IT career that was causing me to be miserable, I started shooting lots and lots of pictures and learning about f-stops and shutter speeds and apertures and all of that. And, and I became a really successful portrait and wedding photographer. I got you know runner-up in a national award for documentary photography for some work I'd done with the children's hospital. I got you know uh, achieved my master of photography through the Australian Professional Photographers Institute. You know, did really well. Grew the business, started making some good money, decided to do my hand at scaling it. And, and through this process, got married and had my first child kicking along nicely. You know, everything's bubbling along. And then the year that we scaled the business, I went from me as the only photographer and two people in the team in the office to four other photographers besides me, two additional staff in the office. And my wife left the business to have our second child, my son. During the same year, I was involved in two separate book projects that published a crapload of my photography. So I'd done all these additional shoots and done all the layout and the editing to be published in two separate books. And I trained for and ran a full 26 mile marathon on the Gold Coast in Australia. So I had a little bit going on. Yeah, that was <laughs> kind of my, a busy year for you. <laughs> that was, 2010 was my biggest year on record, you know, and, and what ended up coming from that was I just blew out badly. I it was kind of like the, the tires popped on the truck and I went hurtling off the side of the road and I ended up being diagnosed with depression in early 2011. I just found myself at the bottom of this hole that I was unable to get out of. I was unhappy I was really, really angry all the time. I was staying up late watching loads of crap television, eating far too much chocolate and snack food, drinking too much coffee during the day to help me work and then drinking alcohol in the night to help me calm down and not sleeping very well because I had a new son in the house so that the household was fairly disrupted. And at the same time, I wasn't keeping up with what I needed to do in my business to manage my four new photographers and my four office staff. And I was not talking to my wife about it because in my head, the belief was she's got a brand new child that she needs to breastfeed and look after and, you know, care for. She's stepped out of this business so she can devote all of her attention to that and to looking after our other child who was nearly five and just starting school. And I can't tell her about any of this. I can't burden her with anything that's going on for me right now. I need to just suck it up, have the, you know, the proverbial cup of cement and tough it out and be the man and be the rock and all these, all these sort of archetypes or stereotypes that men are taught through society and through our parenting and through movies and what have you. And I ended up feeling like I was alone and isolated and not coping and had no idea what to do other than my default, which was drink more coffee, work harder, sleep less, keep pushing, keep pushing, keep pushing. And eventually the wheels fell off, you know, and I just, uh, my wife to her eternal credit and my eternal gratitude said to me one day, something's wrong. And for whatever reason, you're not talking to me. And I don't know why that is, but you need to talk to someone because you're not yourself and this isn't working. And it was just after that conversation that I sat on the couch and I picked up my phone and I didn't even know what I was going to say, but I rang my stepdad because he and I have always had this ability to have quite deep quite powerful conversations free of any judgment, which was amazing. My dad, who was alive at the time, <laughs> had all of his own beliefs around what I should be doing. When I decided to leave my IT career, my God, that was like, you're that was crazy like boy. What are you doing? Yeah. No, exactly. I know. That I was, can hear right? that voice in the back of my head too. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that, that meant that I never quite felt 
and like feelings happen to other people, right? Like his, his way of processing feelings was a six pack and some bourbon. So, so I really, um, I really just felt I need to call someone. I'm going to talk to my stepdad. And it was only in the minute before me dialing that phone number and having that conversation that I just sort of went, okay, something isn't working. I need to do something. And for the first time I was able to admit I'm not coping. I'm just not coping. And I told him and, and then he gave me this most profound piece of advice, which was very simple. He said, you're at a fork in the road. There's two paths you can take here. One path is you identify what the problem is, you fix the problem, and you go back to living the life that you've been successfully living with your wife and kids and business for the last seven, eight years. He said, the other fork in the road is the, the one where you have no idea what the problem is. So that's where you go get help. <laughs> and then from that help, then you figure out the problem and you go and solve the problem. And then you go back to the life that you've been living. So it was very, very simple. And I sat with it and I went, huh, that's amazing. That's like the most profound advice I've ever been given. And I've been banging my head against this problem for six months and I can't fix it myself. So I'm going to have to get help. Mm-hmm. And so in that moment, I suppose the, I guess what I kind of consider as like, the lowest point where I just had to admit that I couldn't work it out and I needed some support to find my way out of the darkness. That was where things shifted. I still go back to that day and look at that as like, that was the sliding door moment. Having that conversation, if I'd have rung him and just said, Oh, I'm okay, but I'm just a little bit wonky. You know, I just, what do you reckon? If, if I had gone in with it, I'm fine. Thanks. Or the typical masculine kind of approach of, you know, in Australia, she'll be right, mate. You know, that kind of idea I'd be who knows where I probably, if I did that, I probably wouldn't be married. I wouldn't have a relationship with my kids. I'd be miserable. I'd be doing something totally different. Right. But in that moment, whatever, what, whatever it was, the, the wisdom, the insight, the little sort of inner voice that I finally listened to that said, this is not right. You need to do something different. I felt like I put my feet on the bottom and actually pushed upwards instead and took a different path, you know? And so from there, we just re-engineered everything. There's a whole other story we can go into about that adventure, but that's kind of the, that's the origin for where I find myself now, because I know after two and a half years of a pandemic in Australia, we're on our third, fourth major natural disaster in two and a half years. You know, late 2019, we had wildfires that ravaged half of the country. 2021, we had profound floods. 2022, we're in our second round of profound floods in the space of four weeks. On top of that, everyone around the world understands what the pandemic has done to business, to community, to connection. Yeah. People are hurting. I know people are hurting and I need to be able to help them understand that there are paths to contend with all of that. You know, just before all of that kind of blew up in Australia, I lost my dad to suicide and it's been, so that was in August, 2019. And it's been, the work of the last 11 years since I was diagnosed with that depression to really come to understand myself well enough to know what I need to be okay, to be a, a, a decent human for my wife and for my kids and to be able to show up as my best as often as possible. It doesn't happen all the time, but as often as possible for the work I do. And I know that I'm here to help men who were, who are where I was 10, 11 years ago and who needs the support of the tools that I've d- discovered, developed, found, did know. So that brings us to that. Well, and I know, I mean, I, I, a lot of my story kind of parallels some of, you know, different vocations, but some similar parallels there. And uh, <clears throat> I wanted to just dig in a little bit because I know you know, like I said, there's a, there a lot of times, um, especially the women in our lives, they, they don't really fully understand what's going through our mind. 
And so I, I just wanted to dig into that a little bit more because I think it's, if we're ever going to be able to help somebody else, right? So like calling your stepfather, he got it, right? Because he probably has gone through similar things like that. Pretty much every man that I've met, we have dark points in different parts of our life, right? And so sure. if, if, you, if you have kind of that wise mentor who can kind of help you or say, dude, I get it. <laughs> I've been there, right? But, but a lot of times we're too manly manly if you will right we we just yeah. can't admit and i and i think that that's you know i heard you say things like i can't burden her with this i need to be the man i need to be the rock right mm. and i and i remember you know for for myself my parents were depression era babies right so so they're they're kind of i i was younger and so, you know, what was acceptable or, or expected as a man, you know, in the 50s and 60s was, you know, the man goes to work, you know, the woman stays at home, takes care of the kids, whatever, right? Now, and we know mm -hmm. that that's all kind of changed, but, but a lot of those, you know, be the provider, be the rock, be the man, you know, kind of stuff is still there. And I don't know how much of it's carryover from hunter gatherer times, but, mm. but like you said before, you know, movies, everything else is kind of ingraining in us of how oh, we're supposed to be a man and man are supposed to be manly, manly men, right? Men don't cry. Well, I know I cry. I know you cry. <laughs> yeah. But it's, but it's not okay. You know, or at least a lot of people think it's not okay where we're emotional beings just like everybody else but we feel like there's this this thing from society that expects us to be something different right and i'm guessing you you felt that as as well right absolutely absolutely i think the the whole phase that I went through I suppose when I was really bottoming out I kind of liken it to I feel like I was holding on with fingernails you know I felt like I was just a tiny slip away from totally losing my crap and ending up who knows where and I didn't even realize at the time but it's only through reflecting back on it that my like I've always been aware that I'm an emotional guy I've always been in touch with that part of me that you know cries at a good film unashamedly you know goes through a personal development course and is is yeah is in I'm in I'm the guy in the corner with the box of Kleenex just sobbing after discoveries or breakthroughs or what have you but even despite that I still felt like I wasn't able to share what was really going on i wasn't able to open up and be vulnerable in that way and it was it was like a um like a subconscious paralysis it was i can't think of any other way to put it i didn't know why i couldn't do this but i just couldn't do this and it's only like i said through this reflection that i've looked back and gone I was just living out all of the tropes, all of the male or masculine kind of archetypes and stereotypes that I'd watched my dad go through, that I'd watched even my stepfather, that he and I could have those sorts of conversations. He still didn't talk about his feelings. He very rarely does. His, his thing is to get out and mow the lawn and do the gardens and do yard work. That's how he processes things. So you know, there was a point in my life where I was living with my mom and my stepdad. And then I decided that I wanted to move house to live with my dad and my stepmom for a while. And that day, the day that my dad was coming to pick me up, my stepdad was out in the yard the whole day behind the mower. <laughs> he was just not in a position to talk. He just, all he knew what to do was just to drive that lawnmower, push that lawnmower around the yard and do the weeds and, you know, all the stuff because, he didn't have any vocabulary about how to talk about these sorts of things. He just had. So it's, a, it's so deeply ingrained, I think. And it's so a part of our culture that 
we don't even see it. It's like that, that pair of glasses that we look through for that long, we forget we're wearing glasses. Yeah. Well, and I, and I wonder too, you know, because I've obviously reflected on this a lot too, you know, and, and of trying to think, is it, because I think, and again, it probably depends on, on the man. There might be different reasons. It could be a combination of all of these, but at least some that I've kind of thought of is, you know, for example, I've, I've always had a lot of my identity on being a good provider, right? And so I've always provided well for my family, for, you know, I'm on my second marriage myself, you know, but, but I've always been there and have been able to provide for the people who rely on me. And, and, and so I took a lot of pride, right, in being able to do that. And so when there were times when maybe I couldn't do that as well, you know, that kind of hit me at the identity level. Same thing when, you know, I think, again, we get kind of programmed that we're the man, we take care of it. And so it feels like maybe we're a little embarrassed that we don't have our shit together. <laughs> and maybe it makes it harder for us to, to actually admit that. I don't, I don't know. Um, but it, it seems like, you know, were those some of the feelings that you were kind of having as, as well? Because like you said, you know, 2010 or whatever was your best year, things were going great, but yet you, you got into this depression and just felt like you couldn't, you couldn't move forward. But yeah, you know, I think that, you know, you were, as you were talking about some of the things like, you know, you know, a lot of times when things don't go the way we want to, men kind of tend to go inside. You know, you talked about your stepfather going out in the, you know, working in the, in the yard. You know, we all have our own little things. That's why a lot of times men will, you know, retreat to their man cave or to the garage or something like that, right? Because a lot of times we feel like we've got to be alone to kind of process and hunker down in that bear cave, man cave, to try to figure out and process what it is that, that we're going through, right? So, and again, these are generalities, but women usually like to process emotion by talking about it. Men usually like to process emotion by going internal and thinking about it, right? Because mm. again, thinking versus feeling in general, men versus women. Um, but, you know, it, it, as we're looking at that, I, I know for me, at least it, it felt like you know, a lot of times I didn't want to admit certain things or, you know, if, if, if something is going wrong, we want to fix it. And I know there were a lot of times when I, I held stuff back. I didn't tell my wife certain things because either I didn't want to worry her or I was embarrassed or, 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 right. I mean, to the point that, I mean, this is pretty, pretty egregious, but first marriage, we were, you know, going through a divorce or we'd, we'd filed the paperwork at like the beginning of the month. I lose my job the end of the month. I don't tell her, uh, you know, I, I, I must've left the house in the morning and pretended like I went to work. I don't even remember. We went on a little vacation because one of her nieces was getting married and, you know, then she finds out <laughs> that I got fired, right? I actually kept that from her. Now, why did I do that? Probably embarrassed a little bit. Some of it was the context of the divorce that we were going through, but a lot of times we don't really share. And I, I'm not quite sure why. So I, I don't know if, if you, as you've done reflection on kind of what you've been going through, were some of those kind of feelings coming up for you? Because I know, like you said, you kind of went into this depression. Your wife knew something was up, but it but it was a little while before you could finally admit it to yourself or at least talk to anybody about it. Yeah, absolutely. I reckon when I look back at it, it's the... It's our old friend, the fear of inadequacy, the fear of not being good enough the fear of not being able to hold it all together. You know, I really feel like that has driven so many of the choices I've made through my life because 
again, bringing my dad back into this, bless him and rest him wherever he is. Next time you see a kookaburra, that's probably him flying past to check in. Um, he had really high standards and everything in his life was about perfection and about the highest levels of achievement. And that was what gave a person value. And it's taken me a long time to realize that the story that I've carried through my whole life of not being good enough wasn't even mine to begin with. It was his, he was the youngest of seven kids, I think, or six kids. And he had a really tumultuous relationship with his own father. He never felt worthy, even though he was a star athlete, he was always picked on the sports teams. He won every event that he ever entered when he went into like the sports carnivals for, you know, track and field stuff, his dad never turned up at anything in his life. And, and he obviously internalized the belief that he was inadequate, that he wasn't good enough for his dad to give him love or attention. The truth of it, his dad was just working his butt off to try and provide for six kids, you know, and, and his dad was a boxer who hit first and asked questions later and had an even less connected relationship with his emotions than my dad and then subsequently me. But I think certainly in my case, the fear of being seen as a failure or the fear of not measuring up to this I guess, validation that I can do it all and I can be everything. Because again, remember I mentioned at the top, I was always academically really gifted and I was always, you know, topping the class, ducks of the school, that kind of guy. To suddenly reach a point in my life where I wasn't number one, where I wasn't winning and achieving and I couldn't figure it out. It was, I think it was that real identity clash. I felt like a total failure and I did not know how to contend with that. And that was counter to everything that I'd been taught brought me value in my life. I was a failure. Sorry, I was, I was worthy and successful. I was worthy and lovable because of my successes and my achievements. That's what I was trying to say. So that, that external validation was how I lived my life. And once that was no longer there, once things got tough, everything just sort of shattered. I'm like, well, who even am I? I can't figure this out. I'm broken. I'm a failure. I can't share that with anyone because of all the shame associated with it. You know, like that to me, I think is really what was at the heart of it. And I don't even think I've articulated it in that way ever. And I've talked about this in quite a variety of different settings. You know, that was, it's really something, Jason, thank you, because that's just given me a whole new insight, but I really think that was at the core of it. Well, and I think a lot of times to kind of piggyback on that, right. It's like, why is men, are, are we shutting down and we don't want to share? I mean, because again, ultimately, like you said, we feel like a failure and we, and, and, and this fear of, of being seen as a failure of being rejected. I think sometimes too, we, we fear telling our partners, right? Because we, we fear that they're going to reject us because we're a failure mm. as a man, as a provider. Now, right. you know, you and I know logically that's bullshit, but subconsciously, especially those of us that have that kind of masculine identity that's been, been indoctrinated into us, right? It's, it's, it's like going in and saying, you know, honey, I'm no longer the man you married, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have no genitalia, you know I mean? It feels, it feels like we're castrated right. or something. Yeah. <laughs> you know at that point and how could you ever love me because i'm i'm not a real man anymore it's so funny you say this because it's actually that reaction actually came from my wife right like we we had this i distinctly remember this conversation we had so my son was born in october 2010 i was gradually becoming unhinged point already and was really struggling and having arguments about we've got to change something i'm not doing all right this business needs to I, you know my my brilliant idea at the depths of my kind of wipeout was that we should 
close the business and I should just go stack shelves at the local grocery store. And that would at least be a low stress occupation for me. I mean, the reality is I'd get bored stiff by about the second shift and I would probably be crying even harder than I was at the time running my photography business. And that's with no disrespect to those people that do that job and love that. But for me, that's just not where my, my passions and skills lie. But about five weeks after my son was born in a really freak accident, my wife got her finger caught in the back door of our house and lost part of her little pinky finger on her left hand. So the last little knuckle and joint where it goes to the fingernail, that whole section is now missing. While she had a five-week-old baby, while she was expected to change nappies and breastfeed and, and console him and carry him around the place. And so she spent the next six weeks after surgery with her arm, her left arm to the elbow in a really tough, uncomfortable cast to hold her hand in position so that it could heal. So all the tendons and things could settle all of that. And so we had this conversation, which went something like my wife saying to me with me saying, I'm, I, I can't work this out. My wife said something to the effect of, listen, I just gave birth to our child who was like eight pound with no drugs in four hours. And he was a posterior presentation. So his spine scraped all the way along my spine as I was delivering him. And I've just had my finger cut off. And I'm up and down all hours of the day and night with him. And I'm doing fine. What the hell's wrong with you? It's just feeling a bit hard, is it? Oh, you poor thing. That must be really tough. Right? That was that was the nature of the conversation. And, and so that whole piece of like having my balls cut off for sure right like i was like well what even am i here for like what value can i bring to this marriage right now i can't keep up my end of the bargain and the shame storm that came from that and the sense that whereas previously my wife and i had been so connected so good at communicating i'd already withdrawn but then that was compounded by her reaction and it was because at the time neither of us had any concept of what mental illness was. Neither of us had any concept that it was real, that it could be diagnosed and that it could be treated and that it was common. Let alone what the broader statistics are, one in 10 new fathers experience postpartum depression, which is what I was subsequently diagnosed with. One in 10, 10% of all new dads experience postpartum depression. And that's likely to be underreported because as we know, men don't talk about their feelings. So, you know, <laughs> the fear of rejection and the fear of being shamed and being seen as a failure wasn't just hypothetical. I actually got that from my wife in that moment, which made it really even harder. So I'm sharing this from a place that my wife and I have made peace with all of this and we're stronger than we've ever been. We've gone through all sorts of wild and wonderful adventures in the 10 years since, but for the women listening, it's a really real fear for us that not only are we not measuring up to our image of what it means to be a man, but we're not measuring up to your image women of what it means to be a man. You know, Alan. and we're, we're right, and we're too scared to say something because wow. of that whole expectation piece, right? So, yeah. well, and, and 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 we'll go there because I had this thought a little bit earlier on. Well, we'll go here since you opened the door a little bit too, because again, I mean, part of this is, you know, just to let people know what's going on in men's brains, right? So, yeah, for the women to know, but also for the men to know, you're not alone, guys. We we get you. We understand, right? Yeah, but it, it, it always, um, you know, again, I told you my my parents depression era babies, you know, you, it used to be, you know, again, what was the man's job, you get up, you go to work, you know, you, you, you put in the long hours, you do what you need to do, you come home, you mow the lawn, you take care of the manly things around the house as well. And, you know, for the for the most part, I mean, it, it when you went back, you know, like to my parents, yeah, the mom was home you know, and so, you know, she was the housemaker or, you know, and, and doing some of that stuff. So you, you both kind of had these, these different discrete duties, if you will. And, and I, I understand, and I realize, especially now with, you know, two, two income families, you know, that both of you are working, you're both stressed out. It's both, 
you know, kind of crazy. But what, what always kind of got me as well was, you know, my first wife didn't work outside the house. I was a good provider. She could stay at home. But even though I'd be off working 60, 70 hours a week to provide well, when I came home, I was expected to do all of the other stuff that men were never expected to do before, <laughs> right? And so it's kind of like, fuck, <laughs> you know? Now, again, I know, you know, like you said, your wife kind of laying into you a little bit. Look, I just gave birth, ba 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 you know, grow mm. a pair, buddy. It's like, yeah. well, thank you, but you just cut them off, <laughs> you know, sort of. Absolutely, thing. but but there is, I think, some of that as well, where you know, men men still have that societal expectation, and and often are the primary breadwinner, but they're also expected at the same time to be romantic and to you know, to, to always take the kids and change the nappies and clean the house and do all this other stuff as well. Right. Because again, I mm -hmm. think there's not just the kind of Hollywood syndrome of a manly man, but there's also this other new romantic stuff that's been thrown on the top of it of what a new real man is like. They're manly man and they mop the kitchen floor. Mm. It's, it's a tricky one, right? Like there's that weird tension that I think as a society and culture, we haven't resolved yet because you're absolutely right. Like on the one hand, every male film star that takes a shirt off is like ripped, you know, rippling six pack abs and pecs you can crack eggs on and all this kind of stuff, right? Like think The Rock, if you don't look something like him, go home. Not many men look like that outside of Hollywood. <laughs> Let's be honest. No. Nobody has and personal trainers and can work out for four or five hours a day, you know, <laughs> that, as their job. That's right. That's right. Yeah. But on the same token, we are expected or, or wanted to be, you know, emotionally available and connected. And then here's the bit, here's the kicker. As soon as a man expresses emotions openly, he gets turned into a meme. Tell me if you've seen the crying Michael Jordan meme, mm -hmm. right? He's a guy who was at the pinnacle of his sporting prowess. The kind of guy I used to idolize and want to be like when I played basketball in high school with my mates, he was the guy he, we want to be like Mike for all of the typical manly traits that he represented athleticism, sporting prowess, wins conquering like he was in the gladiator pit winning he made all of the money you know all of the stuff like everyone wanted to be like him and the minute that somebody in that position expresses emotion and cries they get ridiculed they get turned into a meme for the entertainment of others because it's just so damn funny to see a man bare his soul and open his heart so is it any wonder that that tension is unresolved. We want to be, we, we want our men to be, or women perhaps want their men to be emotionally available and, and vulnerable and at the same time want them to, to be the strong provider and the, the rock of the family. And there's this undercurrent of fear that for the men, if they do all of those things, they get ridiculed anyway. It's like a lose-lose situation. I hadn't thought of it that way, but yeah, it's, it's like, we're, <clears throat> we're almost set up to fail. And um, then we all have the fear of failure baked in and that chronic shame that comes from not being the alpha, you know? So it's like, damn, we're set up to fail and we don't know how to contend with or deal with that. What are we going to do? Well, and again, I think it's, you know, similar, similar pressures on women these days as well. But I think, you know, like you said, as a society, we, you know, for so long, we're kind of in hunter-gatherer or agrarian, you know, kind of, of lifestyles. And now really, I mean, you know, I, I can't remember the numbers exactly, whether it was 70s or 80s, but especially 80s and 90s, where, you know, we get into the two-income family much, much more yeah. than we ever have before. And when you think about that, I mean, it's only been the last 30 or 40 years that we haven't, you know, completely come to terms with or kind of redefined 
and, and really not necessarily the culture needs to redefine it. A lot of the, the definition comes in your individual relationship as well, mm. right? But like and the so, gender roles have just irrevocably changed, right? From the tail end of the 60s, you know, women's liberation and feminism movements, the birth of that. I applaud all of that. But I agree, it's still early days when we think about our evolution culturally and as a species. And what's also really fascinating to me about this is we just, we haven't made peace with the idea that men and women both have masculine and feminine energy that we can draw upon. And when I think about a lot of the women in leadership roles around the world in government or in corporations or other institutions, a lot of them got there by patterning themselves off masculine behaviors, aggression, force, power over all those sorts of things. It's really rare to see a leader. And I think the, the New Zealand prime minister did a really great job in her early term. I'm not really in touch with it as much lately, but of being a more feminine energy leader. It was about inclusion. It was about open-heartedness. It was about empathy and compassion. And I think that there's elements of both that we need to learn to embrace. So men, obviously we have a predominance of that masculine, forceful, powerful, aggressive, strong energy. And we need to temper that to bring some more openness and some more allowing and some more softness women a bit of both as well and and how do we kind of form a uh oh gosh i'm getting all philosophical and deep here but how do we form a culture where we can actually combine the best of each in men and in women right how do we how do we perhaps turn the tide from what I kind of call the sausage party, the, the male dominated all of, and all of, and all of the environmental degradation that we're currently dealing with and living through. How do we bring that back to a sense of balance? Because it's out of balance. Well, yeah, I mean, like you said, and again, I mean, We'll wax philosophical here for a little while, and then we'll kind of wrap up with some practical stuff to help people so, as well. Let's bring it back but, down to earth eventually. But, yeah. but, but it's, it's an interesting um, point that you make there because, you know, the, the pendulum swings back and forth. And, and so much of the time, and, and I, will, I will admit, a lot of times I'm embarrassed to be a white man, right? Because there's been a yeah. lot of really egregious behavior done by you know manly men that usually are white um over over time and and i can understand you know female pushback i mean that was totally totally warranted totally understand but to throw the baby out with the bathwater doesn't make a lot of sense either and so like you said mm -hmm. how can we kind of redefine re rebalance so that we realize both the masculine and the feminine, the male and the female, you know, coexist in a harmonious balance. Um, how do we do that? And again, you know, you're not gonna you're not gonna change it for society in general, but at least in our individual relationships, I think we can define it and we can do things that work for your relationship. I think right, which. Which again, you know, I know you're you're helping men with this, and so again, let's, you know, as we kind of try to wrap up here because we could keep talking forever, but we gotta, <laughs> uh, you know, try to try to give people some something practical to be able to help them as far as you know how how do you you know work with men? What are what are some things that we can actually you know take away from here? And even if we can't solve the world's problems at least hopefully we can make the relationships that we're in better. Because like you said, right at the beginning, right? Nobody, nobody at the end of their life is like, I landed that $65 million deal. That's the highlight of my whole life, right? Mm. It's usually, it's much more about, you know, that what matters is the people that we love. 
And so how, how we can kind of work through and, and get to that so that at the end of our life, we don't have these regrets that unfortunately too many people usually do. Yeah. I mean, just quickly on one thing, the reason I'm so driven with the work that I do is I actually do believe that we can shift this as a society. I don't believe that it's a lost cause. I really feel that men, by taking responsibility for what's in their hearts, for being courageous enough to face themselves in the mirror. And I think it's a moral obligation and responsibility that we have. I think that we can turn that tide. And that's the, that's the, the overarching mission that I work toward in what I do. As far as how we get there, it does start one-on-one. -on -one. You're absolutely right. It starts with each. I started 11 years and that I continually go back to over with challenges like the loss of my dad, like the pandemic, like the natural disasters. I always come back to how can I look after myself mentally, spiritually in this moment and ongoing? Like what practices can I put in place? Because I personally am of the belief and I've seen this play out in my life and in a lot of my clients' lives. When we learn to choose ourselves and, you know, to quote the old cliche, when we learn to put our own oxygen mask on first, then we are able to be the brave who can face our own shadows and who can start to do work on ourselves and then resolve some of our trauma that we're carrying and show up better with a more open heart. There's a beautiful thing that Brene Brown talks about in her book, Braving the Wilderness. And it's just this, this three, three part position she says you know to to brave the wilderness which means to find belonging and also feel completely at home on your own utterly alone we need a strong back a soft front and a wild heart and too often i think men are more like strong back heavily defensive and armored up front closed heart and that to me is where we start working. So when we learn to choose ourselves and by that, I'm talking about simple stuff, get a good night's sleep and make it a bloody religious priority. Like sleep is transformational when done well, when you commit to a routine, when you actually give yourself the rest that your body and your brain needs, how often have you woken up in the morning after a great night's sleep and felt like you could climb Mount Everest, felt like you were just the king of the world, so happy, so joyful just to be awake because of that rush of good energy from having such a lovely rest? Multiply that by seven days a week, 365 days a year. Right? That's a starting point, surely. And then I go into other things personally. I have found massive benefits from a meditation and a gratitude practice, right? Like getting my mind to calm down at least once a day has helped me move out of that fight or flight mode, out of that reactivity that we're sort of driven to be in by the media, by social media, by challenges and stresses, being cut off in traffic. All of these things are sort of spiking that primal part of our brain to go, we have to either, you know, fight like mad or we've got to run away like crazy. And while ever we live in that space, we can't truly be ourselves. But when we can learn to sort of downregulate and bring some peace and some calm into our day through a meditative practice, when we can learn to look with joy and gratitude at, for everyone listening to this podcast, the fact that you have a device and internet connection that allow you to listen to this podcast or watch this on YouTube instantly puts you into the upper echelon of wealth and abundance in the world. Being grateful for that, being grateful that you have clean water and fresh air and perhaps a pillow to lay your head on at the end of the night and food to eat. Like all of these things are so simple and yet we take them for granted, but being able to be mindful and be grateful, it just lets us slow down. And it lets us feel like, do you know what? 
no matter what happens today, I'm going to be okay. And then from that place, that's, that's sort of the jumping off point. And then I gradually work with my clients as I did myself. I work on softening gently into this idea that I'm lovable. I'm worthy. I'm actually valuable and okay as a man and as a human, regardless of and completely separate to my achievements separate to any external validation. When I learned that for myself, that was revolutionary. And it was in actually one of my, I think possibly my first round of the TCP program that no doubt you and your listeners are well familiar with. I know you are. But when I realized that, that whole piece about self-love and disconnecting it from external achievement and validation, we spoke about this a lot with my dad's past and then how I was raised and a lot of what I inherited from him either by observation or energetically or genetically, I don't know. But once I was able to disconnect that and actually sink into this idea that I love myself, I'm okay just as I am, I'm worthy of love, I'm worthy of belonging, I have value intrinsically. Even if all I did was collect welfare and eat and sleep, and exist for the rest of my days, I would have value and I would be worthy. And that, that is a profound piece that I personally believe is at the core of a lot of the tantrum behavior we see in men in society these days. Why is it that somebody like Jeff Bezos is so wealthy and so driven to take himself up into space with all of his rich buddies and yet is so willing to embrace the fact that his company generates his wealth on the back of below average pay and below average working conditions. There's no compassion. There's no heart there. If you are trampling on people to get to the top of the pile, you don't deserve to be at the top of the pile. So why is that? Well, maybe he is just so driven by external validation and achievement. Maybe he's actually in the quiet, dark moments at night, unwilling to look at who he truly is, unwilling to accept that he has value just on his own. Because I believe the strong back part of that saying from Brene Brown, a strong back comes from knowing that we're okay, intrinsically, separate to everything else. The soft front is the willingness to open and be vulnerable to allow ourselves to be seen for who we are to allow our faults and our failures to be seen <laughs> to you know in my situation admit to my wife that i'm actually not coping despite my best efforts and i'm not able to hold up my end of our marriage at this point and i need help that's the soft front piece and then the wild heart is really about the courage to listen to that inner voice. You know, the thing that spoke to me when I was in that server room saying, man, I'm worth more than this. That was my wild heart speaking. That was the part of me that knew that my life was meant to do something different. We all have that voice. We just stifle it. It's too scary to listen to that voice because so much has to change. We have to change who we think of as ourselves. We have to change our identity in a lot of cases, we have to change careers and we have to change how we make a buck. So it's terrifying, right? To confront that kind of conversation for a lot of us. Well, it is, but that's the only, the only way through is to go through it. Right. Yeah. And, and, and I think it's beautiful what you, what you said there, because again, especially, you know, as men, we don't, we don't do a good job of separating our own worth with what's going on externally, right? Mm. It's, you know, pe people judge you when you go to a cocktail party or a, a dinner with somebody, the first question usually out of people's mouth is what? So Israel, what do you do, do, you do for a living, <laughs> right? And they're kind of sizing you up like, oh, 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 right? And, and trying to kind of figure out how much money you make or what company you work for or what your title is because you know, society places value on that, which in turn, we've been taught that. So we place value on that, right? 
you know, and it's like, I mean, I was the same way, you know, as I was working up the corporate ladder, man, when I finally got to be a vice president, that was a big deal, right? Because titles meant something to me at that point. Now, I don't give a fuck what my title is. People ask me, so, so what should we call you? What's your title? I'm like, I don't know, me. <laughs> I don't care what you call me, you know? I know who I am. I don't care who you think I am. But, but you know, as men, we... We do. And so, you know, that, like you said, sleep, being grateful, maybe having a meditation practice and starting to kind of decouple yourself from your accomplishments. Yeah. Because you are not yeah. your accomplishments and you're no. lovable, even if you don't accomplish a damn thing. Absolutely right. I mean, we look at our kids when they're babies. Oh, I'm sorry. I can't love you until you learn to walk. I'm sorry, you're not worthy of belonging until you can do the dishes. It's bullshit, right? It doesn't make any sense. But, but that's what we say to ourselves over and over again. That's the conversation we have with our inner child or with our inner voice. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's a fundamentally broken kind of paradigm, but it's so deeply embedded that it actually takes work and practice. And man, I still bump up against this one all the time, right? <coughs> We're it's, still working through it. It's we're, we're all a work in progress, right? <laughs> so, but the more we can do to embody this, the more we can role model this as men, the more we can have those open and vulnerable conversations with the women in our lives. And for women who are listening, if you are able to, in those moments, put aside any judgment, put aside any expectation of what the man in your life should be or shouldn't be and simply allow yourself to be with whatever he is presenting at that time. You know, like if, if we can do that, if we can just see each other as divine and flawed and see each other as people who are literally doing our best, like at the bottom line, at the end of every day, we are all simply doing our best with what we've got. And when we can begin to soften into that and allow ourselves to recognize that in others rather than you know placing the the shoulds and the expectations and all of the stuff on those people closest to us when we just look at them and go you know what they're doing their best right now yep. changes yeah. the game right it's just it, it could be that that revolution of of how we interact as humans well and that's that's my hope too because i agree with you as well we can change society. We can change the world. We do it one person at a time, one relationship at a time. And um, so, yeah, just everybody who's listening, just do the little bit you can do to make your relationship with yourself, your relationship with your significant other, your relationship with your kids that much better. Um and as we all do that, and as we all, you know, view each other in the humanity, I love that we're divine, but flawed um, kind of mentality and realize that we all are just trying to do the best we can. So let's just love each other and keep helping each other do the best we can tomorrow too. Um, we can end up working, working ourselves through this because, you know, I know when you were sharing your story to begin with, it's not a fun place to be where you were at. You're in a much different place now, right? Yeah. And so that's one. That's one thing to let people know too. Is it's like I know we've been we've been talking about a lot of a lot of things, but when you do the work as Israel is helping people do, and that he's done himself, there's a huge bright light at the end of the tunnel, isn't there? Yeah. And do you know what? we are our own bright light at the end of the tunnel. That's the beauty of the work, right? Like it's, I mean, I, I, I remember really, really vividly just how shit I felt when I was at the bottom of that hole. And all I wanted to hear was, all I needed to hear in those moments were, first of all, it's totally okay for you to feel what you're feeling. It's valid. And secondly, there is a way through this. This will pass. It's not forever. And so for the people listening who might have heard themselves in what I was saying earlier, you are not alone. There are other people that are going through and have gone through this and it's totally valid to feel what you're feeling and 
there are ways out of it. And all it takes for you is the courage to choose that you would like to do something about it rather than feel like you have to stay suffering or you have to stay in pain because you don't. Well, and it's like, I mean, from your story, like you said, that you remember you saying about the minute that you picked up the phone or were dialing mm. your stepfather, you felt like your feet were finally on the bottom and you were no longer drowning. That's yeah. the same, that's the same experience that anybody can, can feel if they feel like they're drowning is just at least reach out to somebody. I mean, start mm. it, do something, whatever little step that you can take, you know, and like I said, Israel's story is perfect, perfect for, you know, exactly how you can do it. Um, but you can do it. You can yeah. do it. You're lovable, you know, exactly for who you are, um, just for being who you are. It doesn't matter what you do, um, but just being, being yourself. Beautiful stuff, my friend. Well, thank you uh, for coming on here. Because like I said, I think that there's a lot of times as men, we don't share our feelings. So I appreciate you for coming on here. I'm trying to do more of that myself just to let other people know that they're not, they're not alone. But I really appreciate and I'm grateful for the work that you're doing and the people that you're helping as well. So and you helped a lot of people coming on here as well. So thank you very much. It's been my pleasure and a privilege. Thanks, Jason. Appreciate the chat. You bet. Now, how's the best way for people to be able to reach out to you as well? So the two places I always invite people to connect with me are through my website, which is just israelsmith.com. And then I also run a podcast where I talk about all this kind of stuff and more. And in fact, from the start of this year, I ran a whole deep dive in what I call my Thrive methodology, which is all of the practices that I've developed and put in place. And it's available on my podcast for free. If you look up my name, Israel Smith, or the Illuminating Lives podcast, thing, wherever you listen, you'll find me. And if you want to jump on there, you can listen to loads of stuff of me talking about this. Even if you just like my voice, I'm okay with that. Just take a listen. <laughs> <laughs> and I love your voice. I love your voice. <laughs> all right. Oh, so we'll make, we'll make sure and put all that in the show notes down below as well. So reach out to him. Like I said, you, you already listened to this podcast. You like podcasts since you're listening to this one. So you might as well go listen to his as well. So uh, again, thank you, Israel. Really appreciate it. I'm sure we'll be talking in the future too, my friend. Thanks, Jason. Thanks. And that's a wrap. Thanks for listening. The fact that you listened to this entire episode means you got value and others will too. Do me a favor and leave a five-star review with comments and then share with others. You can also check out all of my videos on my YouTube channel and my website, jasonmefford.com. This podcast is primarily for education and commentary and does not represent professional advice. Views and opinions expressed on this show are that of the individuals and not of their respective organizations. <laughs>